Hey, welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. Thanks for being patient as I get out another episode. We had spring break last week with the family, and so we were down in Florida, and I wasn't podcasting or working on anything, and so we wanted to take a, a week off, and now I'm back in the game. I wanted to remind you about our uh, Patreon that's available. Um, we actually had our first person sign up on Patreon. Steven Jackson signed up while uh, while I was in Florida. And so I was really excited to see that. So uh, thanks to him for bringing this um, show and making it happen in, in some form or fashion. He actually covered 25% of the cost of the show, which sounds like a lot. The cost just isn't that uh, that great, but but he's been so generous to uh, to jump on the Patreon. So you can head over there. I'll have a link in the description and you can join up to help bring this content uh, to light. And, and if you join Patreon, you're going to have uh, an opportunity to kind of share what you'd like to hear more about, what would you like to hear either me talk more about or what, what guest or who would you like me to uh, have a conversation with? I'll be asking all that kind of stuff on the Patreon. So head over there, join and, uh, and help me kind of, kind of forward this podcast so that I can keep putting great content out there today. I wanted to take some time and I don't think I've dedicated an episode to this before, but it's a topic of concern for me. And I think it should be a topic of concern for you, and that topic is theological anthropology. Now, the reason it's a topic of concern for me is for a lot of different reasons. One is it's going to be a focus of further research in my PhD program. It's something I studied in my THM as well. But theological anthropology should matter to you, and and I want to tell you why. So, theological anthropology is is just two big words: uh, theology, theological, and anthropology. So, theological is modifying anthropology. Anthropology. I always have to clarify for people. It's not some women's clothing store, although that exists. And and my wife worked there for for a season, and actually so did my mom. So they they love that store. Anthropology has to do with the study of people. And so if you get into the academy and you study anthropology, you're studying people and development of civilizations, and it has some overlaps with sociology. But when we're talking about theological anthropology, what we're talking about is a couple of issues. One, we're talking about people being made in the image of God. So we're talking about the Imago Dei or Imago Dei. And so that means made in the image of God. What does that mean? And then the second issue is human composition. And when we talk about human composition, we're talking about uh, several different aspects. You'll get some people that believe that humans are uh, consist of material and immaterial realities. So you get the body and the soul. And so it's a dichotomy. You'll get some who... Uh, they reject the dichotomy and they say, we're just one. So it's it's not monism, but I think it's similar to that, uh, where you get, hey, we're just, we're created being and we're all kind of one thing. Uh, there is no soul apart from the body. You'll get some that believe in kind of a uh, trichotomy. So you've got soul, spirit, body. Uh, some will even go mind, soul, body. And so those are some examples of what we're talking about with human composition. So you've got the Imago Dei and human composition. Those are big questions that relate to theological anthropology. And what we're doing with theological anthropology is we're saying, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? This is a huge question. It's a huge question, and it should matter to you a lot. It's one that you don't need to be an expert on, but biblically and theologically as a Christian, if you are a Christian listening, it should be one that you're concerned with because it is the question that we need to answer in this day and age. And it's been that way for the last, you know, 400 years uh, since kind of the rise of, 
of the modern self. And so what does it mean to be a human is hugely important. Uh, John Calvin is famous for in his institutes. He starts it out with, there's kind of two sources of knowledge, knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God. And what he and his institutes was trying to emphasize was the knowledge, how we know God, and therefore we can know ourselves. And today, uh, what we've seen is a diminishment of humanity. Uh, and I'm going to play that out and tease that out in a few examples towards the end of the episode. But we've seen the diminishment of humanity. Most of your neighbors, friends, family, uh, there are common assumptions about what it means to be a human. And based on how we answer what it means to be a human, that will determine what kind of prescriptions we have for government, for law, for how we treat one another, for what it means to have dignity and worth and value. And so let's focus on the first one first related to theological anthropology is the Imago Day. So when we're talking about the Imago Day, what we're talking about is what it means to be made in the image of God. That comes from Genesis uh, 1 and 2. He made them in his image. And so we have it in Genesis 1. We also have it in Genesis 9, I believe. It may be 6, though. And then we have it in a place in Colossians as well. The image of God is not a, well, it's a robust doctrine and in terms of it's, a, it's an important doctrine. It doesn't have a lot of scripture that explicitly deals with it. Instead, we've got uh, a variety of scriptures that deal with it. And so when we talk about what it means to be made in the image of God, a lot of people just kind of brush over that reality. And and this this topic of Imago Dei really uh, reached kind of a, a cultural point of interest in 2020 when we were talking about uh, racism and George Floyd and, and that kind of thing. And so a lot of people were curious and a lot of people, it was getting me kind of riled up because a lot of people were just, you know, uh, talking about the image of God. All people are made in the image of God. And they were just kind of brushing over assuming that people knew what that meant. And it's like, well, no, people don't know what it means. And in fact, we oftentimes, we assume too much about what it means to be made in the image of God. So you think of it like a suitcase that you stuff too much in. The image of God becomes a suitcase that people just stuff a bunch of ideas about humanity into. Well, in fact, it's a very limited scriptural evidence of what it means to be made in the image of God. One scriptural evidence particularly references that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of God. And so this is where a lot of, a lot of Christians misfire is they, they will misspeak or misbelieve and they'll say, I am the image of God. No, no, no. It's Jesus, the Son of God, is the image of God. We are made in his image. And so we were designed to have kind of a reflection of the Son of God. And so we are made in the image of the Son of God. And some some people will reduce the image of God to certain capabilities of humans. So some people, and this is the edge of the Enlightenment from like 1600s on, where reason was held in the highest regard. And what people, how people differentiated between animals and humans was reason. And so reason became kind of the the point of emphasis for what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it's because of our reason. And so because we have reason, that makes us made in the image of God. Well, you get into a lot of problems real fast with that, because if you play that out, people who are smarter or able to reason more quickly or more cogently, whatever it is, somehow they're going to, going to reflect the image of God better. And, and not only that, but we reduce the Son of God to simply an intellectual exercise of logic. 
right? And so if we reduce the image of God to just reason, that it's our reason, we diminish those people who have reduced capacities for reasoning and logic and intelligence, and we reduce and minimize the Son of God into one who's just concerned with a capacity, intellectual capacity. Now, we could go to John 1 and we could talk about uh, the Word being God, and, and we could talk about logic and how John borrows from Greek there and all that kind of stuff. And, and of course, we want to highlight that the Son of God uh, has as correlations with being the Word and being communicative and, and having an emphasis and rational, cogent understanding uh, in, in order to communicate God's revelatory message of Him saving all things, redeeming all things to Himself. And so we could go down that, that rabbit trail, but when we reduce the image of God being the Son of God to just reason, we're, we're really missing a lot there. And so you see this, this is a common thing. Uh, this reduction of the image of God to reason is something that was common in the 20th century. It's how you got all sorts of atrocities with people who are handicapped or who are mentally retarded or whatever it is. You get all sorts of atrocities committed when we reduce the image of God. There's a book called uh, Destined for Dignity. And in it, the author uh, makes the argument that being made in the image of God is about humanity's design for a special relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so it's not so much a capacity that we have that can either be turned on or turned off. Um, it, it's an inherent design element that is part of every human, regardless of salvific standing. Now, this was in the Reformation. This was actually a very disputed doctrine and not disputed in terms of like, was it there, but disputed in terms of like how they understood it. If you look back on Luther and other reformers, they would actually say that non-Christians do not possess the image of God. And so that gets in a really dicey territory with how you treat people that are not Christians. So I just wanted to expose you to that reality that there there's a history in the church where you'll look at some theologians and they make it seem as if people who are not Christians either have a diminished Imago Dei or they don't have the Imago Dei. And the only way to get the Imago Dei is through Jesus Christ. Well, that leads to all sorts of places where you... Uh, you really don't preserve the dignity and worth of people, uh, regardless of their salvific standing. You can make that argument. I, I just don't see it biblically. Um, that gets us to the second thing, which is human composition. So human composition deals with body-soul issues. So you get quickly into the weeds on, can the soul exist from the uh, apart from the body? And this gets into eschatology. What happens when someone dies? Their body is laid in the ground, or, or today it's really common to cremate. Uh, which doesn't really reflect our biblical eschatological belief. We believe our bodies are resurrected, but that's a different topic for another day. And so we know that our souls are with the Father. This is what Jesus said to the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, that that he will be in paradise with him, right? And so there's a sense in which there is a soul, there's an immaterial reality to humanity that is apart from the body, but that's not the way it was designed. And so what we don't want to do is overemphasize the immaterial in such a way that we diminish the the inherent worth of the material. A lot of Christians get on this kind of kick where they're going, you know, the best thing that can happen is that I don't have a body, you know, or, or I be set free. And you could you could find scriptural evidence for that, especially you could look to to hymns or worship songs about that. And so we have this kind of Gnostic approach where the best thing about me, actually the worst thing about me is my body. The best thing about me is that which is not my body. 
And so that just kind of is contra-creational because God made us to be embodied creatures. So when we're apart from the body, but we're, we're before the face of God, that's a beautiful thing. But what's what's going to be even more fulfilling is when we're embodied and fleshed before the Father when he comes in his kingdom and his glory. So you'll get human composition is a big one because it deals with capabilities of people. Like what does it mean to be human in terms of like, is someone who is brain dead a human? Is someone who doesn't have a full body a human? You know, and so you get all sorts of questions about that. But kind of going back to the Imago Day, that is the big question. And that's the question that's been asked uh, recently a lot. In fact, the Evangelical Theological Society, and it's not this year. This year they're focusing on holiness at their conference, but the year after they're focusing on uh, theological anthropology. And so this is a huge topic of conversation. And I want to tease it out in three ways, why it applies to you and why it matters to you and kind of show you. Because what what basically happened, like I mentioned in the Enlightenment, is we held up reason and the immaterial aspects of humanity as the highest good. So not only did you equate the Imago Dei with our capability of reason, but then you took one aspect of uh, human composition, the intellect or the immaterial, and you elevated it over the material world. And so you pair those two things together, and what you get is a bunch of advancement in technology that is inherently designed to diminish the embodied experience. And so you see this tension all throughout the last uh, 300 years with te technological advancement, is there's a constant sense of diminishing embodied experience. And so you'll you'll highlight things that are almost anti-human. Uh, if they're not anti-human, they they seek to go away from traditional human expressions, like art, for example. If you look at modern art, a lot of it is very dehumanizing. It, it goes against. It's kind of like cold and sterile, and the material physical forms that are used are like concrete and straight lines, which humans aren't made in straight lines but but in the modern world it's all about linearity and structure and order all things which as christians we should say those are good things but when we elevate them to such a degree that art and architecture and things diminish humanity that's a reflection of our assumptions about theological anthropology for the last 300 years uh so i want to do three examples uh, abortion, transgenderism and technology i already mentioned technology briefly but i want to touch on it one more time so this is kind of riffing off Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body. We had her come out and give a talk uh, with Trinity Church and a couple other churches in Denver. And she did a great job presenting her book and showing how our bodies are essential and that we have to learn to submit to the created order. And particularly, she was referencing gender. But if we just think of abortion, for example, let's think of the, the matter of abortion. So with abortion, the Christian belief is that abortion is going to be a sin. Uh, it's not something that's good. And the reason why is because the from conception to the grave, every human life is made in the image of God. And so we should not uh, eliminate a person based on their developmental cycle. So like just because someone is incapable of speaking or incapable of doing certain things, that doesn't make them less of a human. What makes them human is being made by God and being designed by God to be a human. That 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 fertilized egg will become a human, a full-fledged human, I should say, uh, if no one inter interferes or if some something medically doesn't go wrong, that will produce a, a baby, right, which is a human. 
And so when we talk about abortion, a lot of people, they the theological anthropology they're coming with is that somehow the from fertilized egg to full-fledged baby in those that nine-month period, somehow that's not a human. I, and I've talked with secularists who approach this in such a way that they say what it means to be a human is that you can experience suffering. And so the best thing you can do for humans is to diminish suffering. And so what they'll say is we shouldn't abort babies in the womb if they can feel pain. Feel The feeling of pain is like what makes you alive or shows that you have kind of cognitive connection with your embodied state. And so you'll see they'll show videos of, of babies shrinking back from the instruments of death coming at them. Um, and you can go find that. And that's terrible. It's absolutely horrible. But a lot of secularists will approach it like, well, at that point, it's wrong. But before that, it's totally fine. Because until someone can feel pleasure or pain, that's what defines humanity. Uh, we as Christians would not accept that, of course. That's not a Christian response to abortion. And so you see this in, in how people justify abortion. They define human humanity and what it means to be human a certain way. As Christians, we say, look, being a human is defined by God, and we're made in the image of God, which is the Son of God, who is the Son of God. And so therefore, every human is worthy of dignity and respect. Does that mean there's not other conversations to be had around uh, capital punishment, for example, or, or other moral and ethical issues in our world? No, that there's other things that we could explore on that matter. But all that to say that when you think about the topic of abortion, the the question is, what is what does it mean to be human? When does human life begin? That is the question we should be going after time and time again on that matter. The second one is transgenderism. So uh, with transgenderism, a lot of the assumption becomes what it means to be a human is ultimately I define my own existence based on my own thoughts about myself. And so it doesn't have to do with embodied experience. So what we're seeing with transgenderism is we, if we take the issue of human composition, which I reference up front, and we take a dichotomy, which is the immaterial and material, the soul and the body, what the transgender argument is, is that the soul determines what the body should be. So the soul, instead of they, they exist harmoniously, and if they don't exist harmoniously, they should, and we should seek to bring them into alignment. Instead, the transgender argument is that the immaterial world should conquer the material world. So the, this is playing off enlightenment values where the intellect is superior, reason is superior to embodied experience. And so with transgenderism, it makes complete sense being birthed out of the enlightenment that they're elevating the immaterial reality. This is what I feel about myself. This is what I think about myself. Therefore, I'm going to mutilate my body to line up with what I feel or think about myself. And so this is this is not just an issue of transgenderism. There's a lot of issues surrounding that, uh, whether it's body dysmorphia or anything uh, related to that stuff. There's many issues related to how we view what is a human. And then finally, we get to the issue of technology. Technology itself of the last, I mean, since the Industrial Revolution, it has accelerated so quickly, it's astonishing. If you just did a survey of, of technological advancement, it would be shocking, you know, the way that our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents lived and, and the different uh, accessories and accoutrements and just uh, conveniences of modern life that they had or didn't have at the time. And so with uh, technology, technology reflects the values of the culture. So what, what technology gets advanced and gets promoted is reflective of the values of the culture. So the 
the perfect example lately is virtual reality. Virtual reality is the perfect example of kind of these enlightenment values where we champion reason and the immaterial over the embodied experience. Because now what matters most isn't actually me going out. Let's think about like virtual church, for example, something nonsensical, but a lot of people are doing it. Life church, as soon as virtual church could happen, they were using virtual church. And so they'll they'll make it seem like what's most important is just that your your thoughts are with other people, that that you can be somewhat present with your consciousness with other people. Your physical presence doesn't matter as much. Now we all know that's not true. Like deep down primally, we know that's not true. We know that if our marriage was just uh you know, you'll, you might do long distance dating, but you wouldn't do long distance marriage. That wouldn't be seen as a good virtuous thing. And that's because we know that long, long distance marriage is not only not sustainable, it's not loving, it's not kind, and you don't get the full experience of someone else. To experience someone else is to be present with them and to be around them physically. And so virtual church is a is it, it makes sense from an enlightenment, modern, postmodern framework where we elevate the immaterial over the material world, but it's totally incongruent with a biblical framework of uh, theological anthropology. And then the last thing on technology um, with, with virtual reality is kind of a whole is what you see is commercials. Uh, the great example was the Facebook or Meta commercial on their VR platform. I think it's Oculus. And you get two guys living next to each other and they don't know that they're neighbors, but when they get in the VR world, they put the headset on and all of a sudden they're best buds in that. But then they go out in the hallway and they don't even know who they are. And and so to me, they're actually celebrating uh, that. That's They're promoting that as like, isn't that funny? That's clever. And to me, I watched it in horror. Like what an awful vision of the future. We None of us should want that. Like we should not want to live that way. And yet a lot of us do. A lot of us do on our phones, on through our computers. I mean, think about how dissatisfying work is nowadays where you're sitting at a computer emailing other people instead of being around other people. And so our modern world is built on a lot of theological anthro theological anthropology questions about what it means to be human, what's best for humanity. And so our technology develops out of that. Now, what should we do about that? That's a great question. That's a great question that I don't really have an answer for in this episode. I see a lot of people who are like trying to get back to homesteading, right? Or they're trying to get back to like raising chickens in their backyard or, or they're trying to do something to recapture what feels like we're missing in life, whether it's through physical work, uh, manual labor, building a home, hunting, uh, these kind of things that I think are really great things. But what I sense is kind of this desperate longing to get back to something that feels more creaturely because what the modern world does in its assumptions on theological anthropology is it diminishes humanity. It diminishes humanity. You, you, when you email people, when you get online, when you watch, when you experience, when your primary experience with culture and with reality is digital, it is inherently uh, a diminished experience and platform. And you can, you can add as much uh, sound lights, uh, immersion experiences you want into it. It's just not real life, right? It's, it is, you're experiencing it, but it's just not the same. And so my encouragement to you would be start building habits now that minimize uh, as much as you can your involvement with technology. And this is this is something I have to pay attention to, how much I'm involved online in front of a computer, in front of a screen, and be with actual people. Uh, go to church, like being with people at church. That's not just like a, it's not some made up law. It's not some pastor trying to control you. It's literally like, it's better for your soul. It's better for your soul. Like you trying to do church in your living room, in your pajamas, eating pancakes, whatever it is. Like that's just not the real deal. Like, and you know it. 
and because it's just not satisfying. And so when we reduce, reduce Christianity to kind of this, I'm going to listen to Matt Chandler podcast, listen to Hillsong worship, and that'll get my spiritual fix. Well, you're assuming that's a lot of assumptions about theological anthropology that I, I think are, are incongruent with a biblical framework. And so that's not what Christianity is all about. You got to get with people. You got to be with people. You got to find a spouse, have some kids, be around your family, um, be around your coworkers, and be around your community, your church community. And that's going to be much more satisfying, much better for you long term, because it's the way God designed it to be. So that's theological anthropology in kind of a nutshell. Hopefully this was helpful for you. I'd love to hear what questions you might have, what I had to miss, what am I not seeing? Uh, what is something that you think is a good example of how theological anthropology matters today and answering the question of what it means to be a human? And if you're even brave enough, maybe you should ask a coworker, friend, uh, start a conversation with them on this topic because I bet you they have an answer. And I bet you that answer is probably assumed by enlightenment, enlightenment values and modern and postmodern assumptions. So it'd be fun to see you guys uh, talk it up with them. Like I said, go check out my Patreon. Uh, sign up there. You can help support the podcast there. I'd love your support. And thanks to Stephen Jackson, who's bringing this podcast to you as my, uh, my Patreon subscriber right now. So I will see you soon.